0: in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, preaching through the book of John. These past 18 months we're up to a very super familiar chapter about the vine and the branches. As you're turning there, you know, last weekend our high school students went to rock the universe and a couple of our older kids at home, the Gilbert clan, they went out of town with the group So, Susan and I had the opportunity to take out our youngest um, Virginia to a movie at the fabulous new Falls Chase Theater. Have you been there? Um, We spent this year's Christmas budget on tickets and some food. It was amazing, (laughs) but it was great. It was awesome. We saw The Incredibles 2. So, now if you don't know, now you know, let me tell you that superhero movies are super popular. Did you know that? Did you pick up on that? Uh, they ran a thing at the IMAX downtown where you could go see all 20 of the Marvel movies in succession if you wanted to, to donate $500 to that cause. Now, I'm convinced one of the reasons that superhero movies are so popular is that we're, we, we love to see these characters wrestle kind of with their, their, their superhero-ness on one hand and their humanness on the other their, are their, their dual identities. You know, we love knowing that Helen Parr, stay-at-home mom, forced into the workforce when her husband, Bob, was fired from his insurance job. She's really who, folks? Elastigirl, absolutely. Rides around on a motorcycle, catching bad dudes. She's having to duel D-U-E-L, with her dual, D-U-A-L, identity. Those are homonyms, by the way, if you're playing along at home. (laughs) Dueling with her dual identity. And in our text, Jesus is going to have us kind of do the same thing as believers. He's going to have us sort of wrestle with these, these two identities he's given us as believers. If we are going to grow in our faith, if we're going to grow in producing fruit, which he has called us to do, if we're to be obedient to his commands, if we're to find joy, which is one of the main points of this chapter, we have to to wrap our minds around these two dueling identities, which Jesus is going to tell us our identity as a son, and secondly, our identity as a slave. So if that sounds provocative, you've come to the right place. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're willing and able to hear the reading of these six verses from John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. And Jesus is speaking. And he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Lord, we're asking for your help now. There are some amazing things in this text. There are some sobering things in this text. But you've given both of them to us to wrestle with in our souls so that we can truly find our joy met in you. So we ask your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. You take your seats. Let me give you some context here for these dueling identities that we are going to, to talk about this morning. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Scott was in John chapter 15, very familiar passage about the vine and the branches. And in that passage, there is an intriguing link that Jesus, that Jesus makes, and we don't typically make this link. There's an intriguing link that he makes between obedience and joy. That's interesting, isn't it? Because as individual autonomous Americans, we don't typically put those things in the same sentence. We don't put those ideas together. Anything that would constrain us, limit us put parameters around us, boundaries. We don't like those. We resist those. We're people who know where we're going and what we're doing. And we do what we want, when we want, spend what we want, travel where we want. We're friends with whom we want. And so to to hear something about how our happiness could be linked inextricably to obedience and obeying the commands of Jesus is, is sometimes it can, we need a little bit of a a refresher, a reset to understand how these things connect. Let me read the two verses from last week to you again. This is going to give us a context for what we're talking about today. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, here's the, here's the, the clincher verse. These things I have spoken to you or commanded you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may may be full. Joy and obedience. Sometimes they just seem like they don't or shouldn't go together. It's kind of like having your FSU tailgate and your obnoxious brother-in-law gator fan in his cut-off jean shorts, his mullet, and his tank top shows up. <laughs> Did you catch that? Okay. Not welcome, right? And that's kind of what the way it is with joy and, and obedience. It's like, that, that's, that's not welcome. Let me, let me make the connection here for a second. As I'm going to go on the on the assumption this morning that and hopefully this is not foreign to you if you're if you're a Christian but the most valuable soul satisfying reality in the universe is God. That what is going to make heaven so amazing, so eternally joyous is not the fact that we get to play a harp or ride on a cloud or eat a piece of fruit and I don't know if we're going to be doing any of those things necessarily. But the most amazing thing about heaven that will be at the root of your eternal joy and mine is the fact that God will be there and that we will see him face to face, that we will worship him, that we will see him as he truly is. But till then, God has given us his word and his word is the revelation of himself more specifically, his commands to us are an expression of his nature. They're an expression of his character, which means if God is the most soul-satisfying thing in the history of the universe, obedience will not take you towards unhappiness. In fact, obedience will take you in deeper with God, in communion with him, in fellowship with him, We'll get into this in a minute, but, you know, obedience gets a bad rap. We, we mislabel obedience and call it things like legalism. We, we, we mislabel obedience and call it things like judgmentalism. Not knowing that when we do that, we are severing the very root of our joy that God desires for us. Whether you know it or not, God wants you to be happy God God wants you to be joyous. God wants you to be fully satisfied in him. He wants your joy and my joy to be complete. And the question is, how, how does that work itself out? Well, John 12 through 17 tells us something of this, tells us of these two identities that we have to wrestle with. And so our two points are going to be simply this. Number one, we are sons. And number two, we are slaves. We're going to look at son first. And let's look at verse 15, because there's a momentous transition that's taking place here. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you Friends, for all that I have made heard from my father, I have made known to you. There there is a graduation of sorts happening in this text. Up to this point, the disciples' relationship with Jesus can most accurately be described as that between a servant and his master. The master is the boss. He tells them what to do, and they do it. They trust unequivocally. Sometimes they trust blindly. Sometimes they don't understand the master's commands. They disobey the master, and the master has to to discipline them and redirect them. But now Jesus says something momentous is happening. Now he tells the disciples, what I'm about to do is going to allow you not merely to be servants, but in fact to be my friends. You're going to be a part of my inner ring. You're going to be my confidants. Now, the reason I'm using the word sons instead of the word friends, friends is friends is a great word. The problem is not the Bible and the word friends, the, the problem is us. We're very confused about friendship in our culture. And I really think it's all Facebook's fault, don't you? Now, what kind of friend is this? where you can simply unfriend them, and they're no longer a friend, if only it worked that way with our extended families, right? Just unfriend them. See, the irony is that, you know this if you read the books or seen the movies, that Facebook, the five guys who helped found Facebook, all wound up where? In court, because they hate each other, right? Right? So so Edward and, and Mark Zuckerberg, best friends, founded this company, and now what? Estranged for life. See, our, 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 our thoughts about friend, or the word friendship, can, is, is weak oftentimes. It loses its force, which is why it's so important that we understand what the Bible means when it says friends. That's why I'm using the word sons. We all resonate with sons. It's like, ooh, that's a special status. I was supposed to take over the construction company, but, for example, the owners whom moved in? Son. We all get that. Oh, the son came. Yeah. The son's got privilege. The son's got status. The son yeah, has the inside track, so to speak. That's what Jesus is referencing here. But what, what, what does he mean specifically by friends? Now, uh, up to this point, Do you realize up to this point, there's only two people in the whole Bible that are ever referred to as the friends of God? Did you know that? Only two people, Abraham and Moses, the hall of fame, like of biblical patriarchs and prophets. Guys, in Old Testament Israel, there was no higher honor than to be called a friend of God friends of God walked with God. Friends of God met with God. Friends of God talked with God. They visited with him. He invited them into his inner council. What did he tell Abraham? Abraham, look at these stars. Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Let me tell you about my secret plan, Abraham. Unknown to the nations, I choose you that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He was truly a friend of God because God let him in to that most secret, intimate place. See, slaves are simply told what to do. But friends are told why they do it. See, you get this, don't you, parents? That, that at a certain age, children need to obey simply because you're their parents and you know best and it would not do, any, do anybody any good for you to try to explain your reasoning behind something. They wouldn't believe it anyway, right? But as they get older you widen your circle. You bring them into your confidence. You explain to them what is happening. They become privy, this, the friend does, to the master's thinking. And, and before we continue on here, I just I encourage you just to, just to soak that in for a while and to think about what an amazing privilege it is you know, a lot of times we blow past these things, we take them for granted, and we forget that we are actually, if you know Jesus Christ, you are a friend of God. That there, we, we, we said it, we sang it, there is now no condemnation for you. There is a, it has some other implications that we'll talk about in a minute, but, but fundamentally, this is something where through the history of redemption, two people are called friends. And do you realize you now sit at the same table as Moses, as Abraham, who walked with God? All because he made you his friends through Jesus Christ. So, so, so two kind of sub-questions that kind of compel themselves, push themselves forward here as we continue to think about our, our status as friends or as sons how does this, first of this, first of these is, how does this friendship thing happen? How does that happen? You may have wandered in here today and are like, well, maybe I can just befriend God, okay? Or, or is God my friend? Or how do I become God's friend? Look at verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose You. That word, I did not. I you did not choose me. I chose you. Echlogomaya. That's that's the root word. We get the word election. It means unconditional choice. The word in the Greek, Allah, you haven't chosen me, but okay, Allah. That's the word. It's a strongly adversative word. It means it's it's used to stress the contrast. It's used to, to communicate this. Friendship is one that is solely and completely initiated by God. That's the point. This was God's doing. This was God's emphasis. It's not like we were all sitting around one day far from God and said, you know, one day I'm going to let God be my friend. That's not how that happened. Is that, is that your testimony? No, God broke into your life. God opens your eyes. This has been the message from start to finish in the Gospel of John. We've seen it in the, in the new birth with Nicodemus. We saw it in John chapter 6, 44. No one comes to the Father unless I draw him. All through the Bible, we see this is that salvation is God's sovereign prerogative in initiative. Now, we respond to that call through faith. That's a fundamental part of the the gospel equation here is that we respond to God's initiation. But, But the first thing we have to understand is that there was nothing in us that compelled God to be my friend or your friend. Does that offend you? See, the Bible bears witness to the fact that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, God initiated the reconciliation. God initiated the truce, not, 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 a, not, a, not a temporary truce, not a temporary armistice, but in fact, he made peace with us through the cross. That's the point. This is, just a, this is always just a, a sobering, humble reality. Never do we say, well, I'm a friend of God. No, 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 no. Because of God's grace and mercy and initiative in our, in our lives, our response is just as the disciples, we are only servants, we've only done our duty. Glory be to God. So the friendship happens at God's initiation that we respond to. But what's, what this text is particularly interested in noting is, how do you know if you are truly a friend of God? That's the, that's the fundamental question. How do you know? See, that's, I venture to say that even in our post, post-Christian culture, many, many, many people, maybe a majority would still say, oh, of course I know God, or I know about him, or I recognize him. You need to understand something. Knowing about God recognizing God being conversant in the language and knowledge of God that is not the same thing as being friends with God so how do we know if we are truly friends of God look at verse 13 greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends You know, friendship was very important in the Greco Roman world. You've all seen the movies that depict the Roman legions or or the Spartans, this idea of brotherhood. And of course, what is the ultimate way that you express the supreme duty of friendship? Well, it's very simple. we we all know it. The the greatest response of friendship to someone that you love is that you lay your life down for them. You lay your life down for the brothers. You, You lay your life down for your spouse. You lay your life down for your children. In the body of Christ, we're compelled to love one another. That's the supreme test of love. Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. But here's Here's the point Jesus wants to make for us. Just because you're willing to die for someone, that doesn't make them your friend. Being friends is what makes you want to die for them. See, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Let me say it a different way. Obedience is not what makes you friends with God. That's not what he's saying. Obedience is what characterizes your friendship with God. Does that make sense? See, your, 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 your willingness, see, our, our works, our fruit that Jesus calls us to abide by being his sons, that is not the basis for your sonship. That is not the basis for your Friendship. Never can we say, God, because I this and because I that and because of this thing and my obedience and my duties and my responsibilities and I gave and I was involved in community group and I came to church every week. It's based upon these things that we're now friends. No, no, that's, it's, that, that's the wrong equation. We've gotten the variables out of order. No, no, Jesus says, first of all, God chose you. You responded to him in faith. And you are now his friends. And the way that you know that you are his friend is that your heart's desire is to obey him. Your heart's desire is to follow him in obedience. Your heart's desire is to do what he commands, not perfectly, and often our disobedience can be catastrophic as believers, but here's the the test. Are you okay with it? Am I okay with it? Or is there, is there something yearning in our hearts that draws us back to our sonship to know, you know what? In this particular area, I'm not behaving as your son, Lord. In this particular area, I'm not, I'm, I'm not acting in accordance with what a friend would do. I'm, I'm, I'm being negligent at home. I'm, I'm not conducting myself in integrity at work. I'm I'm being harsh with my spouse. I'm being harsh with my with my children. I I am compelled, Lord, to want to examine these areas, these issues in light of my sonship. See that, that that equation, getting that equation right, is of eternally is of internal importance in knowing and confirming your friendship with God. So let me just leave this point by asking you once again, are you a friend of God? Do you know God besides merely from a distance or from a tradition or from a ritual or from a history, but do you know him personally? Has he, have you responded to his initiation in your life to say, you cannot save yourselves. That's why I'm initiating sending my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. See, that's how Jesus, how did Jesus Christ demonstrate his love for you? He was willing to die for you. He was, see, he's not calling us to anything that he hasn't done himself. He's been obedient to, obedient, even, be obedient, even to death on a cross. So there's the sonship, the friendship of God. Number two, the second aspect of our identity that we want to wrestle with here is that in addition to being sons, we are also slaves. So look back at the text, back at verse 15. Jesus says, "'No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know.'" Now, that word servant in the Greek is the word doulos. Now, it's translated servant, but there's a lot of other words. Understand this. There's a lot of other words in Scripture which can be used to denote servants. So, servant. So, like diakonoi. That's the word we find, for example, in Romans 16 where, where Paul's saying phoebe She's a, she's, she's a diacono, a servant of the Lord. Or this person in the church in Philippi is a servant of the Lord. Paul certainly, Jesus, the scripture writer, certainly had all of those words at their disposal. But interestingly, here Jesus uses the word doulos. It literally means one who is owned by another. One who is... Subservient. Now, in your translation, it probably says servants. In a couple of your translations, it might say bond servant. But there's only a very, very few Holmans and maybe a couple others where the actual word slave is used. And the reason, not to get into this textual debate and discussion this morning, Because you may ask, well, well, Pastor Paul, if it means slave, why doesn't it say slave? And by the way, this word doulos is not a peripheral phrase or term in the New Testament. It's used literally hundreds of times. Peter refers to himself as the servant of God. What's the word for servant? Doulos. Paul, in all of his letters addresses and says, to the church in Philippi, to the church in Corinth, I, Paul, a what? Doulos of God. But because of the, the historical, the cultural baggage that can be, that can oftentimes attach itself to that word slave, because you've got to remember that for the history of the world, slavery has been an institution upon whose backs empires were literally built. And as Christianity emerged into that culture and slavery was gradually abolished all across the Western world until it was, at least in, in, in many places, um, not, not obliterated but greatly reduced... And as the Bible was being translated, the word slave had such a stigma attached to it that the Bible translators were like, it's so prone to misunderstanding, right? And in fact, many of you are probably sitting here right now and saying, Pastor Paul, I don't like that word. And understandably so. Understandably so, because our own culture, our own country has its history with this concept. But nonetheless... Because it is universally used, this word doulos for slave, and it, and it means slave. There is no equivocation about it. It is the chosen word all of the apostles in the church use for themselves. In fact, 60 years later, remember John wrote this gospel in, in, in 80, 90 AD. Jesus said this 50, 60 years before. Jesus has just told him, I no longer call you servants. But interestingly, John, who writes Revelation, what does John say in Revelation 1? Let's look at that. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his what? Duloi. Slaves. The things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his what? Dulos. Dulos. Servant John. You may say, well, Pastor Paul, that's a little confusing because doesn't the text say that Jesus no longer calls them servants, no longer calls them slaves? Let me just use this example to kind of explain how I think this functions or is supposed to function in the life of the Christian. So many moons ago when I was doing my doctoral work and I had a dissertation committee, I had people on that committee helping me who were all called Dr. Something of the Other, right? Dr. Reddick, Dr. Peterson, Dr. Hill, Dr. Bar... I can remember all of them, okay? Just, Just like that, okay? And it was interesting that after I successfully defended, okay... They all extended their hand and what was the spirit of that room? Oh, now call me Ray. Okay, now call me Coco. That is truly one of my committee members' names. Okay, Coco. Call me Marsha. Call me, because now I was not merely a student. Okay, but I was, I was a colleague. I was, there was, there was so, this sort of I was in the inner ring, so to speak. I was privy to their understanding and their conversations. But yet, yet, you knew that was coming. They would always be my committee members. Dr. Reddick would always be my major professor. I remember, just like it was yesterday, it was a few years after I had successfully defended and we had made an agreement Dr. Reddick said, I'll be, I'll be your major professor, and what you're agreeing to is to take your research data and to compile it and to submit it for these particular journal publications. It was kind of like, this is a this is way we help each other. And of course, I had not done that, okay? I had not done that. And I, I, I remember where I was. It was. I think we were on the monorail outside of the Magic Kingdom, and I got that email. And it says, Paul, this is Dr. Reddick. I'm checking on you to make sure that you are still in the process of fulfilling your commitment. Okay, what was she really saying? Get with it, buddy. And what did I say? Yes, ma'am. Right? Yes, ma'am. See, she'll always be my major professor. See, when Jesus says no longer, he doesn't mean that we no longer have that aspect of our identity He just simply means we no longer have that aspect of our identity exclusively. Absolutely, we are sons. Absolutely. But, Christian, did you know it is perfectly theologically correct to say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 15. That word, well, we've been really camping there in verse 15, but when he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, you see that word master? In the Greek, the word is kurios. We re- literally translate that in all other parts of scripture as what? Lord. Do you know that? When we say that Jesus, it's the same word, master, Lord, curiosity, the exact same word. You see, I would submit when we when we say that Jesus is our Lord, do you realize what we're saying? We're saying He is our master. He is our He was our boss. He is our sovereign. He is someone that we live in subjection to absolutely we're sons, absolutely we're sitting at the same table, but we're sitting at the table submitted fully and completely to him. I, I would maintain that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is Jesus Christ, your Lord. We love to think about Jesus Christ as Savior, that he saves us, he redeems us, he rescues us. But what does Paul remind us? You have been what? Bought with a price. That's humbling, isn't it? We were in the slave market. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to unrighteousness. Jesus came, bought us with a price, which was his own body, his own own self. And so now, it's not that we cease to become slaves. We become his slave. We're his sons as well but we're his slaves. I, I think this is an aspect of the lordship of Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, our identity in Jesus that we so often fail to really wrestle with. Let me make two points, two application points Is we'll, we'll, we'll be done. You know, the church, let me say this on, on a corporate level, the, the church has to fight against heresies in every age. It always does, and it always will, by the way. Whether there are controversies about the Trinity or, in our, or, or prosperity theology or in our own cultural context, the nature of the atonement or ethics and sexuality, all of those things that the church is wrestling with where it's, it's, it's wrestling with the Lordship. What is at the roots of all of them? See, I would maintain that they all have to do fundamentally with this desire, this effort to circumvent the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul's very clear. Anybody who desires to be rich falls into a, a, a terrible trap. And we look at that text and we say, Hey, Paul, come on. Paul didn't live in a capitalistic culture. Paul didn't understand what it what this meant. This is, come on. This is let's reinterpret this in a way to say that, well, prosperity or money is a sure sign of God's blessing. You see how that works? We're in our attempt to circumvent the lordship of Christ in a specific area we do great harm to the church. This happens in the area of sexuality. Surely God would want me to be fulfilled. Surely God would want me to be happy. Surely God would want me to find, to be able to express my sexuality in any number of particular ways. But then we read certain texts and well, surely Paul didn't mean that. I mean, he's written in a different age, in a different time, in a different culture. He couldn't have anticipated the the, the nature of relationships in the twenty first century. And we and we end up asking things the same as Eve has asked. And we we've heard me say it before. Did God really say? And that answer always comes in the form of a hiss, doesn't it? Always does. So I would maintain that this idea of the lordship of Christ and that we are are his slaves has immense application corporately. But you know what? And you know this was coming. It has immense application for us personally. Just a couple, couple application questions. Where in your life, where in my life, do we need to be reminded that Jesus is the boss? that Jesus is the master, that Jesus is the Lord. You know, we, we love to look at our little portfolio of areas that we think the lordship of Christ is functioning in. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm generous. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm faithful in these ways and these particular things, but this thing over here, ooh, not so much. Not so much. We're just going to kind of keep that cordoned off, hidden over here to the side, put, swept under some carpet or rug or something like that. Where do you, where do I need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is Lord? Knowing, and you know this, when we live with an area in our heart and life that we know we are not yielding lordship to him in, because that is a miserable place to be, isn't it? It's a miserable place to be. We, we, we deny it, we suppress it, We shove it deep down in our subconscious. We think about all the areas that we are doing so well, but all the while our heart is having its joy stolen because we don't recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, this is what John means when he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full as you live in obedience to me. So where in your life do you need to be reminded of the Lordship of Christ? Guys, verse 16, and then we'll say this and we'll be done. Let me mention a particular fruit of obedience he would like us, Jesus would like us to consider this morning as we come to the table. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and i listen, and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. That word "appointed you," Tithomai, it means literally to appoint, to ordain, or to set apart, as you would set apart someone for the ministry, or that you would send someone forth into the mission field to accomplish a particular mission. I think it's very clear here what Jesus has in mind. Says disciples. Your world is collapsing around you right now. I'm about to go to the cross. I'm leaving you. I want your joy to be made full. And let me tell you a way that your joy will be made full in obedience. Open your eyes to the world. Open your eyes to the needs around you. See, Jesus has a heart for the lost. And friendship with him means that we likewise have a heart for the lost that we are to in a like-minded way bear fruit. And Jesus says one of the chief ways our joy is made complete is through mission. It's to giving our lives away. It's to serving one another. It's to extending ourselves to our friends and neighbors. It's to by opening our homes. It's by bringing someone to church. It's by volunteering in Good News Club. That can look a thousand different ways, but the point is, do you feel that call of the master to go and bear fruit? Understanding that the supreme example is Jesus himself. See, when Jesus says, no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, do you realize that Jesus became friends with you by laying his life down for you. Jesus had to, in the, in the sanctified, absolutely perfect way, wrestled with those two aspects of his identity, that he was a servant, that he was a slave, but he was also a son. And as we come to the table, we are praying that God, as we celebrate the reality of the death of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, that he was slave and son for us, that we would say, likewise, Lord, what does it mean to be your slave? What does it mean to be your son? Because we know in that place, our joy will be made full.